Well, let me invite you to, to join with me over in Exodus chapter 20. We're continuing our series this morning on the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. Uh, a survey was, was done, and over 80% of Americans said that they felt that the Ten Commandments were a good moral guide for individuals. And that was impressive until in the same survey they asked the people to name the Ten Commandments, and only 30% could come up with even three of the commandments. Uh, When we started this series, and I was over in the auditorium, uh, I started off with a pop quiz first week. You know, name the Ten Commandments, give you time. Just think for a moment. Can you name the Ten Commandments? Do you know what they are? And in our congregation, first service, we had about five people who could get all ten of the commandments. And second service, we had like three people who knew all ten of the commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments are the law, the moral law that God has given to us And the purpose of the commandments is not to save you. You can't be saved by keeping the commandments because none of us can keep them. But they point out to us that we are sinners that need a Savior, and that is their purpose. Now, you may not know this, but when it comes to the Ten Commandments, and we're going to look at the the Ten Commandments stated here in just a moment, different people have different lists of the Ten Commandments commandments. Uh, We're going to be looking at a list that most uh, Protestants, most evangelicals accept as the Ten Commandments. But uh, the Jews, for instance, count the introductory statements in Exodus chapter 20 where it says, and the Lord spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, they count that as a command. And then they shift some others around to get to the Ten Commandments. Uh, The Catholic Church and the Lutheran churches take the first two commandments that most Protestants accept as a commandment, put those together in one commandment, And then at the end of the list, the Tenth Commandment, Thou shalt not covet, they break that up into two different uh, commands. Well, I'm really not all that concerned how anyone breaks up the commandments. What is important is that we keep all of them that are here and we not eliminate them no matter how it is that we list those commands. Now, one way that the Ten Commandments are referred to in the Bible is they're talked about being on tables of stone, the two tables of stone. And so you might wonder, how are they broken up on those two tables? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, but there's like three different theories. On the one theory is that the first four commandments are on one table of the stone, and the last six commandments are on the other table. And as we break the Ten Commandments up, the first four deal with our uh, vertical relationship with God. The first four deal with who God is and how God is to be worshipped. 
The last six deal with our horizontal relationship with one another and how we're supposed to treat one another. So some people think they're divided that way. On one table is the first four. On the other table is the last six. Of course, there are those who just say, well, it's probably split even, even, you know, 50 or five on one and five on the other. There is another thought which is probably would be what I would lean to, even though the Bible doesn't exactly tell us this. In those days when a treaty was signed, each person got a copy of the treaty. It's sort of like you, when you get into an agreement, whether you're buying a car, you're buying a a house, or you're purchasing something, they write it up, and whoever is selling it gets a copy of it, and you get a copy of it. That was common even back in biblical days. But in this case, they're saying all ten of the commandments was written on each of the stones, but because God doesn't really need a copy to remind him of what his commandments are, both were given, and we're told that they were placed into the Ark of the, the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a box that had golden angels sitting on top of it that went into the Holy of Holies where the high priest would only go once a year on the Day of Atonement. And it's thought, people speculate that the Ark of the Covenant is still out there. Uh, Some of you may remember the Indiana Jones uh, series Uh, was it the Temple of Doom? Is that the one where they were searching for the Ark of the Covenant? Raiders of the Lost Ark. How could I forget that since they were talking about the Ark? (laughs) And you'll remember what happened when they opened the Ark? Well, I don't think that's exactly what's going to happen when the Ark is opened. Uh, But it may very well be out there someday. There's a lot of Christian scholars that believe, and Jewish scholars as well, that believe the Ark of the Covenant was protected when Israel was invaded, and it is hidden someplace, and one day it's going to come out. I don't know whether that's true or not, but if that is true, the tables of the law were placed into the Ark of the Covenant and we'll be able to find out what was written on it, each of those tables. Well, the Ten Commandments stated. I'd like for you to read the Ten Commandments together with me. They'll be up on the screen. And let's just read those together in unison, if you will. Do not worship any other gods. Do not make idols. Do not misuse the name of the Lord. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false witness. Do not covet. Well, this morning we are zeroing in on commandment number three. Um, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, where we read this. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This commandment in the Hebrew starts out with the word not, just like the first two commandments. It's giving force to this statement. 
You are not in any way take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, the word vain means frivolously, worthless, thoughtless. Vain refers to that which is empty, devoid of force, lacking in content, non-productive, useless, dead, fruitless, aimless, of no real lasting value. We are not to take God's name in any of those ways. I thought it would be important for us here before we talk about the negative of what we are not to do to understand the basic names of God. You know, God is revealed throughout the whole Old Testament. And for the, in the Hebrew culture, a name referred to your character. Parents would name you based on what they expected you to be. All right, so my real name is not Butch, but Delmar. Now, what does Delmar mean? Does anybody here have a clue what the name Delmar means? Neither did I for a lot of years. And I finally looked it up. And it means of the sea. Now, if there is anything that's further from the truth about me, it is not that I am of the sea. You get me on with the slight bit of waves, and I am seasick just like that. I take motion sickness before I get on the boat. And when I've forgotten to do it, oh man, I have felt so sick. So I am not of the sea. But Hebrew names would refer to something about the individual. Now, in the case of God, it's revealing to us about his character, about who he is and what he is like. Now, there are basic names of God, and that's what we're going to look at here in just a moment, and then there are combinations of those names where other things that are added that will tell us even more about God. So what are the basic names that are used of him throughout uh, the Old Testament? Elohim. It's the plural of mighty. It's the word that's used for God in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created. It's a plural of power, of majesty, of might. And the application for each of us is that he is the creator of everything. And he he created each and every one of us. You know, the psalmist talks about how we are knit together in our mother's womb. And that is why all of us as God's people, as Christians, should be so totally opposed to abortion occurring because it's a person within the womb. It's just not a mass of tissue. God has put it there, and God is knitting us together in our mother's womb. He created you. You are special. God made you the person that you are. Another of his names is El Elyon, God Most High. 
He is, it means that he is sovereign and absolute control of everything. And the application for us is nothing can occur in my life without God's permission. Now, that raises a lot of questions for us, doesn't it? How can God allow this? How can God allow that? Why is this happening? Why does it seem that everything is going wrong for me? And probably the classic example of all that in the Bible is Job. If we remember all the things that happened to Job, he loses all of his possessions. He loses his family. But yet God is ultimately in control. In our world today, we have this kind of idea of dualism, that we have good and that we have evil, and they are equal in power. Or some Christians have the idea that we have God and we have the devil, and they are equal in power with one another. No one is equal in power with God. And nothing can happen without it going through the permission of God. He's a sovereign, and he's in control. The name Adonai, which means Lord, Master, or Owner. And for each of us that names the name of Christ, he is our Lord. We've called upon him, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he's our Master. He's the one that we are to serve. El Royai, the God who sees It's talking about the fact that God is omniscient. He knows everything. You know those times when we're all alone and we do some things because we think there's nobody going to see, there's nobody going to find out, nobody will know. God is there. El Shaddai, God Almighty. He is the all-sufficient one. He's the one whose grace is sufficient for us in our lives. When the Apostle Paul was dealing with what he called a thorn in his flesh, and he prayed to God and he asked God, take this away from me, get rid of this, so I don't have to deal with this. Do you remember what God told him? God told him, my grace is sufficient for you. Jehovah Yahweh. I am that I am. When God told Moses to go before Pharaoh in Egypt and demand that the people of Israel be allowed to leave Egypt, Moses asked the question, who should I say has sent me? And this is the name that God gave I am that I am. God is totally and completely self existent. This word, this name for God is used as the covenant-keeping God. He always keeps that which he promises. Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will see or the Lord will provide. God will be there to see you through whatever it is you're experiencing in your life. He will freely give to each one of us exactly what we need. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, our healer. God can heal. Do you believe that? Do you believe when you pray for someone that is sick that God has the power to heal them? 
God has the ability. Now, God chooses sometimes to work through doctors. He chooses sometimes to work apart from doctors. But God has the power to heal no matter what the disease is. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner. This is uh, the name that they used of God when they were going out to war, that he was like a banner over them, that God has the power to provide what is needed for victory. And no matter what it is that you're facing in your life, no matter what problem it is, God has the power to give you victory over that issue. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, our healer. I already covered that. I'm sorry. Let me jump down. Jehovah Mekadeshim. I don't know exactly how to say it. Someone else can probably take a, a, a stab at that. It means the Lord who sanctifies or the Lord who sets us apart. He sanctifies us daily. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. He provides peace. We can count on him when we cannot find peace anywhere else that if we look to him, his name is the God who gives peace. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. This name for God occurs more than 270 times in the Old Testament. It means that God's provision for us when we are in great difficulty will be there, especially in times of affliction, conflict, and warfare. We can count on God when we're in difficult times. Jehovah Roy, this one you'll know because it's what's used in the phrase The Lord is my, what's the next word? Shepherd. Shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Jehovah Roy. Jehovah Ezer. The Lord our help. He is there to help us. And Jehovah Shema. The Lord is there. He is always there. He is not always, um, he is not only omniscient, he is also omnipresent. And so he is there. The psalmist David said that if I were to ascend into the highest heavens, behold, God is there. If I descend even into the depths of the earth, behold, you are there. There's no place you can go that God is not there. Well, you can just see from these different names what it reveals to us about our God. And the psalmist in Psalm 111, verse 9, cries this out. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. In Psalm chapter 8, verse 1, he cries out, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. These are all the names of God, and we are not to take the name of our God in vain. We are not to misuse God's name. So let's talk about this morning 
what that means. Now, most of us, when we think about taking the name of God in vain, we will think about cursing or swearing. And we'll talk about that in a moment because that is definitely taking the name of God in vain. But there are other ways that we misuse God's name and we take it in vain. First of all, we misuse God's name when we take it lightly. And we just say it out there with no meaning or no thought behind it. You may be guilty of this, or certainly you will hear others who are guilty of this. They hear something and their response is, oh Lord, oh Lord. Or perhaps they say, oh God. And it almost becomes a filler in their sentences when they're talking, oh God this, oh God this, oh God that. Or, oh my God. Someone tells you something and your response is, oh my God, I just can't believe that. All of those are using God's name lightly, using it in emptiness. And that violates what this command is telling us. We're not to take the name of God in an empty type of way. Uh, The ancient Jews and even some modern Orthodox Jews and others so much do not want to misuse the name of God that they won't even write it when they're writing the name for God, and you may have seen this from certain individuals, they'll write G-D. The reason they're doing that is they don't want to take God's name in an empty type of way. Now, you can have your own opinion about uh, that. I don't think that writing the name of God means that we are taking it in vain, but let's give credit to them. Their desire was not to do something that will dishonor God or in any way misuse his name. So when we use the name lightly, or or maybe, you know, even sometimes people in their prayers will just throw in the name of God here and there, Uh, but they're just doing it for a filler and they're not using the name with any meaning, that is taking the name of the Lord in vain. Second way that we misuse the name of God is through profanity that we've talked about. Through curse words, using God's name to curse something or someone. You get angry and the words just fly out of your your mouth. That's misusing the name of God. Another way that we misuse the name of God is through perjury. When we say and we use God's name and we are saying that we are promising to tell the truth. It used to be when you go into a court of law, you would go in and they would ask you to put your hand on the Bible 
and they will say, you know, repeat after me, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Well, the last time I was in court and I was a juror, uh, there was no Bible that was used that people were sworn in for their testimony. Well, some people thought that doing that was violating the command that God has said that we are never to say, I swear this or I swear uh, that. Uh, But I don't think that's what the passage means. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 6, in verse 13, it says this, it is the Lord your God, you shall fear him. You shall serve him, and by his name you shall swear, so that you use God's name to say, I'm swearing that this is the truth. Over in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13, going over into the New Testament, we find there that God swears by himself. God says, this is true, and I swear it by my own name, and God does that because there's nothing greater than him. So what can you swear on that is greater than God? So God swears by his own name. What the command is talking about is that if you use the name of God in what you are saying is true, you must be speaking the truth. See, the Jews of Jesus' day tried to get around that. So they would take oaths based on other things so that they would feel, if I just, I don't swear on God's name, but maybe I can swear by something in the temple. Then I don't have to tell the truth, and uh, I can deceive you. Sort of like, have, have you ever heard someone or heard of someone say, oh, I swear to you this is the truth. I swear it on my mother's grave. Have you heard that before? I wonder if they lie if they plan to go dig up their mother's grave. You know, I I don't know. But the idea for us and what the commandment is telling us is that we are to be people of the truth. That what we say can be counted on as being true. In James chapter 5 verse 12 we're told this. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by the earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. When you say something is true, your word should be able to be counted upon. When you make a commitment and a promise, you should follow through. On that. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So don't perjure yourself. Don't lie. And for us as Christians, it doesn't matter whether we're under oath or not. I, I keep, you know, I keep hearing this about our politicians. You know, they will say one thing in front of the camera, but then if you put them in a court of law, they will say exactly the opposite. You can't count on their word to be true. And that's true of members of both parties. 
for those of us as Christians, our words should mean something. What we say, we should be able to count upon. There's a fourth way that we can misuse the name of God. And I never thought of this one before until I was studying this this week. We can misuse the name of God through hypocrisy. Through hypocrisy. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, give me a couple, let me give you a couple examples of that. On Palm Sunday, Jesus is riding into the city of Jerusalem. And the crowds are there before him. And what are they crying out? Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of God. Later in the week, they are in the crowd. And Pilate asks the question, what then should I do with Jesus, who's called the Christ? Remember what they said? Crucify him. That's living and using the name of God in hypocrisy. Claiming one thing and then doing or saying just the opposite. Now, those of us who have given our lives to the Lord, we are referred to as Christians. The name was first given to those believers because their behavior was like that of Christ, so they called them little Christ. That's what Christian means, little Christ. So when we claim to be Christians, when we claim to be Christ followers, when we claim to be those who love and serve God, And we live our lives in a manner that totally goes against what a Christian should be doing. We are using the name of God in vain because we are claiming one thing and doing something else. Do not, do not, misuse the name of God. Another thing we want to see in the passage is the warning about God's name. The warning about God's name. Look at it in verse 7 again. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The idea here is God will not let go unpunished those who misuse his name. He'll not hold them guiltless. The main idea here is that payday is coming someday for the misuse of God's name. So we, as individuals, need to be careful how we use God's name. And I am so thankful that there is forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember, none of us are saved by keeping these commands because we can't. But these commands show us that we are sinners 
in need of a Savior. And Jesus went to the cross and shed his blood so that we can be forgiven. And Jesus' blood covered all of our sins when we put our faith and trust in him. They are underneath the blood of Christ. And if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I'm telling you, based on the words of Scripture, if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, judgment day is coming. And you will have to give an account. But there is deliverance from that by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Years ago, Alexander the Great was walking through an encampment of his military people. And he came across a soldier who was sleeping, who was supposed to be on guard. Alexander was disgusted. And he rebuked the soldier and woke him up and demanded, tell me your name. The trembling soldier uh, muttered that his name was also Alexander. In total dismay, Alexander the Great replied, either change your name or change your behavior. For those of us that are the followers of Christ, if we are claiming Christ as our Savior, but we are openly living in a way that brings discredit to God, please don't tell anybody you're a Christian. Don't say, hey, I'm a Christian, and then totally disobey God. But the better action for all of us to take is to live in the way that God wants us to live. Sure, we're going to stumble. Sure, we're going to fall. But when we do, we can confess that sin. But when we are striving to obey him, then let everyone know that you are a follower of Christ. Because Jesus, just as Jesus said of himself, I am the light of the world. He also says to his followers, you are the light of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us your commands. Help us, Lord, that we might obey your commands and honor and serve you. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we typically close our services each week by saying good morning and Maranatha. But I am aware and was pointed out to me again this last week by members of my staff. You know, there's a lot of people, they don't know what Maranatha means. And they just can't quite figure out, why are you saying that at the end of the service? Uh, I've told people... Given the choice, I would never again name a church Maranatha because nobody can say it, nobody can spell it, and most people have no clue what it means. The word Maranatha is an Aramaic term that's found in the Bible that means, O Lord, come. It was actually used as a greeting 
with people. It was actually used as a benediction at the end of services that they would say, O Lord, come. It's also used as a prayer in saying, O Lord, we want you to come back. So we mean all of that together when we use it as a benediction in our services. And so to all of you this morning, thank you for coming and worshiping with us. Good morning, and let's say it together, and Maranatha.